again, this time of year, it is so easy uh, to really kind of um, want presence instead of presence. And really, you know, what Jesus really wants are not presence. He really just wants presence. He just wants our presence, our being with him, our desire to commune and to fellowship with him. And, and so this is kind of, again, a very humorous way of just putting across a very, very important point. Emmanuel, God with us. God came for a relationship with us. And oftentimes we kind of become uncomfortable or unsure what to do with that. And so we want to try to just substitute a bunch of things uh, in there in place of what God is really after. And that really is uh, our hearts. It's just really to be able to fellowship and to commune with us. And so as we kind of just continue uh, working our way toward uh, Christmas, we've been kind of looking at the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, uh, and the names that he kind of used as he was kind of giving us a, a prelude into the long-awaited, uh, expected Messiah that one day was going to come. And so there in Isaiah 9-6, he kind of begins to reveal a little bit to us what this Messiah would be like, who this Messiah would be. And there we read, for to us a child is born, to us a a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now we know this side of history that this child Isaiah was referring to, that son that was given, found its fulfillment when Jesus Christ was born over 2,000 years ago in a manger there in Bethlehem. And Isaiah is giving us a prophetic word regarding the one who was to come that would redeem mankind from sins to be able to restore us back into a right relationship with our heavenly father. And, and he's saying, God is going to come among you. God is going to take on human flesh. God is going to become a man, and, and he will be given the name Jesus. Now, again, we talked about, you know, names were important back in those days. They, they, they would often pray for long times just asking God, what should we call this child? Because again, names spoke something about what that child would become. And you remember when Mary and Joseph received word, they were told by the angel Gabriel that they were to name the child Jesus because that name meant Savior. And, and so he said, you shall name him in Matthew one twenty one. he shall save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus meant. That's what he was going to come and do. And so Isaiah also foretold, he said, now when this, when this child is born and the son is given, he is going to be known by a lot of different names. And he says the, these names are going to embody certain characteristics, attributes, uh, functions that would identify him. And so Isaiah kind of reveals to us five names there, even though there are over 700 different names used to describe the Messiah, to describe Jesus, he gives us five, and he said, here are some names the Messiah is going to be known by, Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 
And so far, we've looked at those first two names. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the name wonderful. And that word in the Hebrew, it means miracle or miraculous. And what Isaiah is saying, this child that will be born, this son that will be given, he will be wonderful. He will be a miracle. He will be miraculous. And so we looked at the conception, the birth of Jesus. That was a miracle, born of a virgin, We looked at his life and his ministry full of the miraculous. People were healed. We looked at the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and certainly we know that that also was miraculous. So from beginning to the end of his earthly life, we know that Jesus fulfilled that word, wonderful. The second name Isaiah proclaims there is the name Counselor. He said his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And we talked last week that Jesus is not just a counselor in the sense that he has sent the spirit of wisdom, the Holy Spirit, to give us advice and guidance and direction for our lives, but also as a counselor that he has a plan. He has a design for our lives. So as that counselor, God has a plan for your life, a plan to give you a future and a hope. As a counselor, he has a plan of how to take you from where you are, no matter where that may be. I mean, you could be in the most lost place this morning. You you couldn't be any further from God here this morning. But as a counselor, he has a plan. He has a strategy to get you from where you are, no matter how far you are, to where he wants you to be. He has a plan for that. That's part of being that counselor. He knows he's committed to bringing that to pass into your life. All he's waiting for, again, are just surrendered lives, receptive hearts that say, yes, God, I I want that for myself. The third name that I want to talk about here that is revealed there in verse 6 is that phrase, the mighty God. That that is the one that just um, gets me the most. Now, in Hebrew, that is the... Hebrew name, El Gabor, and El being God, Gabor being mighty. And so one of the things that Isaiah is saying, in addition to all the other things the names communicate, he says, this child that is born, this son that is given, he shall be the mighty God, El Gabor. And I love that where he talks about, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And again, that child there. being born, that refers to his humanity. The son that is given, it refers to his deity because deity cannot be born, it must be given. And so Isaiah is telling us something about this child. When he comes to earth as a human being, he will be the God-man. And I believe, as much as I can understand that Jesus was fully man and fully God. And when I say fully man, I mean man as man was intended to be. And when Jesus came, El Gabor, he was the God-man, fully God and fully man. Again, we can't just gloss over this. I mean, to me, this is foundational in the Christian church today. I mean, this was a major sticking point with the religious leaders during the three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry. I believe Jesus made this claim to his deity, to being co-equal, to being co-eternal with God. 
And because of that, many times throughout his earthly ministry, you may remember, it led religious leaders to seek his death because they thought his claims of being co-equal and co-eternal with God were heretical. One such occurrence was in John 10, beginning in verse 23. Jesus was in the temple walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade. The Jews, again, these are the religious leaders, surrounded Jesus and asked, how long are you gonna keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. They were looking for him. They were ready. They were wanting the Messiah to come. And Jesus replied, I've already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is the work I do in my Father's name, but if you don't believe me, because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me, for my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. And he says, the Father and I are one. Once again, meaning this isn't the first time, once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. Again, to us, it seems like a pretty strong reaction. See, they understood what Jesus was saying, what Jesus meant in that response. The Father and I are one. And Jesus said, at my Father's direction, I have done many good works. For which one of those good works are you going to stone me? And they replied, we're stoning you not for any good work but for blasphemy, you, a mere man, claim to be God. Again, this is not an isolated incident. Similar encounters like this happen throughout the Gospels because numerous times Jesus intentionally, on purpose, equated himself as co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father, and for that, many of the Jewish leaders sought to have Jesus killed. And yet, the very scriptures, those Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, revered the book of Isaiah among them, makes the statement that this child that was to be born, this son that was to be given, would be the mighty God. Not only would this Messiah be a mere man, but he would also be the mighty God. And again, the reason this is so important and and why every opportunity I have to lay this foundation, I wanna lay this foundation because to me, this is central to the Christian faith. Because you will hear people say, Jesus is not God and he never claimed to be. Jesus, they'll say, was a good person. He he was a great teacher. He was a wonderful example of what a human being should be. He, He was a great prophet, but he was not God. Now, I personally believe there's no way you can read the New Testament without finding over and over and over that not only did Jesus claim to be co-eternal, co-equal with God the Father, but also New Testament writers believed that and died for that belief as well. The Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 
Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. That right there, there's just no other way to interpret that. You can deny it. You can offer up all kinds of of reasons why you don't believe that. But I'm saying Paul believed that Christ was the visible image of the invisible God. And he said he existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Verse 19, he says, For God in all his fullness was pleased to dwell in Christ. That's why I said deity can't be born. It has to be given. And that's why the child is born and the son is given. Paul wrote in Philippians 2.6, again, referring to Jesus Christ, though he, Jesus, was God. Again, very clear. I just don't see other ways to interpret that. Paul is very clear there. Though he was God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be understood. So when, we, when you're running into these walls of, I don't know, I don't understand, it, it's intended. It, it's not intended to be grasped. It's not intended to be understood. It's just intended to be marveled at. It's intended to get lost in the wonder of the love that God had for you and me to leave his, his heavenly throne to become man and to dwell among us. We're to get lost in the beauty, in the wonder of that. To get lost in the love that compelled the Father to send his Son. To get lost in the love that compelled the Son to come to earth, to dwell among us. The universal church throughout the ages has also taught and believed Jesus Christ was co-eternal, co-equal with God. Many of you have grown up in the church. I mean, I grew up in a mainline denominational church. And in that, a lot of us are probably familiar with the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, or maybe you're familiar with both of them. I grew up in a church where we kind of recited the Apostles' Creed every Sunday morning as a part of our worship. I used to know that thing by heart. As I was kind of working on this, I realized certain lines kind of come back really quickly, but if I had to recite the whole thing from memory, I don't know that I could do it. But there was a time in in the church where we had to learn this as, as part of our confirmation. We had to stand before the church and recite the Apostles' Creed from memory. And again, these these creeds and others like them, I didn't really understand them. I really didn't appreciate what the purpose of them were. I mean, I was probably taught, I just didn't pay attention to why these creeds were a part of what we did on a a weekly basis in our worship of God. And again, these creeds and others like them were designed to be short, condensed statements of faith summarizing the major beliefs of the universal church. Now again, one of the differences that I've came to discover about the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed is the Apostles' Creed, written about 50 years um, after the last books of the New Testament, does not explicitly address the deity of Jesus Christ. Whereas the Nicene Creed, which was written kind of a, a, a couple of centuries after the Apostles' Creed, goes into greater detail um, in regarding Um, the nature and person of Jesus Christ. The Nicene Creed also kind of provides greater clarity regarding the universal church 
the, our, our belief in the person and nature of the Holy Spirit. So the Apostles' Creed, and some of you again are going to remember this from uh, your time growing up in the church, and it says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. So see, as questions and disputes and confusion and arguments began to rise within the universal church over the person, the nature of Jesus Christ, uh, in regards to whether he was co-equal, co-eternal with God, the church went on to define that more clearly in what is called the Nicene Creed. And as I said earlier, what this was designed to do was to try to settle any arguments, confusion, dispute within the church regarding the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. So the Nicene Creed in part states, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father through him. All things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. Put a bow on that. Merry Christmas. That's what it's about. You understand that or at least attempt to just meditate, open your heart and your mind to that truth, you'll have one blessed Christmas. I don't care what else is under the tree. That is the meaning, the message of Christmas. Again, all this to say, there's always been questions, doubts, confusion, conflicts, regarding the person and nature of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus God? Is Jesus co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father? Does Jesus Christ same the share, share the same essence and nature with God the Father? Or is he, as some believe, like the religion of Islam, that Jesus Christ is a good person, he's a great prophet, not as good of a prophet as Muhammad, but he is not God. And again, this is not just a, a trivial theological discussion that has little or no consequence, regardless of what you believe, rather the question of his divinity is central to the heart of Christianity. As a matter of fact, our confessing the divine nature of Jesus Christ is essential to our salvation. Romans 10, 9 says this, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Central to your being saved, receiving the gift of salvation, it is essential that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now that word Lord there in the Roman is the Greek word kurios and it is equivalent to the Old Testament name of Jehovah God. 
So when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you are confessing that Jesus is indeed divine, that he is God. He is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. When you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you are confessing that Jesus and the Father are one. They share the same nature and essence and being and that Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. That belief in Jesus Christ is essential to the heart of Christianity and it is absolutely essential to our salvation. And when God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, do you realize it was intended to be sign, proof, that God the Father was validating and telling you and I that Jesus Christ is exactly who he claimed to be? Do you realize no one has ever been resurrected from the dead? They were brought back to life. We know of people who were raised from the dead, we call that resuscitation, meaning they were dead, they've come back to life, but they died again at some point in the future. When, when Jesus died, he wasn't resuscitated from the dead to go on to die at some other time. When Jesus Christ was resurrected, and that's different from resuscitation. That word resurrected, it literally means Jesus goes in, he confronts death, he overcomes death in a way that he comes out of that tomb with a body and an existence in which death was no longer possible. That's what resurrection means. It means you've died and you have overcome death in such a way that death is no longer a possibility. It can't touch you. Jesus went in and he killed death. And proof of that was, was that he was resurrected and came out with a body, with a being in which death could no longer rule or reign over him. It took God to do it, and Jesus did it. So back to Isaiah 9, 6, when that child is born, that again refers to his humanity. When that son is given, it's referring to his deity, to his divine nature. They said his name shall be called the mighty God. I told you all when I uh, was in, in uh, uh, walking down the street one day, I saw a guy who was wearing a t-shirt, said three words, Jesus is God. I'd been raised in the church, raised in the Lutheran church. Again, this may have been taught in our church. If it was, I don't remember it. But I remember just being absolutely blown away by that. I never ever thought, I knew Jesus was the son of God. I thought that was just, you know, I'm a son of my father, but you know, uh, I'm not my father. Um, and, and so when I saw that phrase, Jesus is God, and there were scripture verses in really small print under that, and I asked the guy to just stop. Because I, I was just blown away by that. I never ever, ever heard or saw that before in my life. And I copied down those scripture verses and I went home and I got out my Bible and this was one of those scripture verses that was listed. I just sat there and looked at that. I thought, the mighty God. And I came to that realization in that moment, Jesus is God. Now it took me a while to come to that place where I made that confession. But I'll tell you what, it impacted my heart deeply to understand who this man really was. So when he says, when this Messiah that Isaiah prophesied about, he said, when he finally comes forth, 
He will be fully man and fully God, which is exactly who Jesus Christ was and is and will forever be fully man, fully God. And even though Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, he is seated there as one who is fully man and fully God. Now, several weeks ago, we talked about the importance of names. In that expectant parents would oftentimes just kind of pray over, maybe for months at a time, and they would ask God, God, what do you want us to call this child? Because they understood that the name that would be chosen for that child would reflect their hope. It would kind of be their prayer over that child, the expectation of what they wanted God, how they wanted God to move over and in the life of this child. Names in the Old and New Testament times were intended to kind of communicate attributes and qualities and characteristics of what they hoped this child would become. Now again, different names of God we find in the scripture are also there to intend to reveal to us something about God's nature, about his attributes, his characters. I love it if you get a Bible, uh, an authorized version of the Bible, and you just begin to read, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. And as you kind of go through that creation narrative there, it's God did this, God did that, God did this, God did that. And then all of a sudden, you kind of get into the fall of Adam and Eve, the sin in the Garden of Eden. And all of a sudden, it's no longer just God. All of a sudden, God begins to reveal a new dimension, a new attribute, a new characteristic about him. And, he, and all of a sudden, we find the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, God. All of a sudden, it's no longer just Elohim created But now all of a sudden Jehovah Elohim comes at the fall of mankind. I don't have time to go into all of that. But again, it's absolutely significant that God reveals something new about his nature. And in that name uh, Jehovah, it is a God who saves. All of a sudden God sees humanity fallen. And all of a sudden Jehovah, Elohim, I have a plan to save. And he begins to reveal himself in that way. So so that happens throughout the scriptures. So the first time we find this name, El Gabor, the mighty God. The first time we find that in reference to God, again, it's God opening up a new dimension. He's giving a new, a deeper, a fuller revelation of who he is He says, not only am I Elohim, Jehovah Elohim, I am also El Gabor, the mighty God. And the first place we find that in reference to is Deuteronomy 10, beginning in verse 17. And there it says, for the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and the great, the mighty Gabor. And the awesome God who does not show partiality or take a bribe. Now again, that word Gabor in the Hebrew, it means champion, warrior, conqueror, hero. So in reference to God being El Gabor, the mighty God, he is the mighty champion, he is the mighty warrior, he is the conquering God, he is our divine hero. Let me just give you the context of this because the context in which we find this is so powerful. And here's why the name God, El Gabor, appears when and where it does and what God was intending to communicate to them as well as to us now. Now in Deuteronomy 9.1 it says, Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go into dispossessed nations greater and mightier than you, great cities fortified to heaven. Now don't just gloss over that. 
The nation of Israel, they're getting ready to finally cross into the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And before they go in to take the land that God was giving to them, Moses is there giving them one final pep talk, kind of like a fireside chat, if you will. Remember, Moses was not allowed to go with him. He had to remain behind. And so as you read on in chapters 9 and into chapter 10, Moses begins recounting and reminding the nation of Israel all that God has done for them in the last 40 years. He reminds them how God miraculously delivered them from the bondage of slavery to Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea or through the Red Sea, conquering Pharaoh's army. Moses reminds them of how God sustained them in the wilderness with manna, how God gave them the Ten Commandments, not once but twice because Moses broke the first set, mad at the nation of Israel, and he throws the tablets, and he breaks them, and God says, okay, now you're going to do it yourself this time. Moses recounts for the entire nation of Israel all that God has done to bless them, delivering them from their enemies, keeping them from destruction and annihilation as a nation. Now, in this context, it is in this context that God reveals himself to them as El Gabor, the mighty God, the conquering God, God the warrior, God the divine hero. Now why would God have Moses make this particular revelation of him being El Gabor at this particular place in time? Remember, they're not only going into the promised land after waiting for 40 years, but what he says to them on the front end of all of this is, when you get there, one of the first things that are gonna be waiting for you are enemy nations that are greater, bigger, stronger, and mightier than you. Moses is basically telling them, I want you to know everything that God has done to bring you to the threshold of the promised land. To get you to this point, God is going to continue to do as you move in to this new territory. Moses is essence saying to them, when you get into the promised land, when you come face to face with those mightier nations, do not worry, do not fear. The mighty God, the El Gabor who delivered you from Pharaoh's army is the same mighty God who will deliver you from all future enemies. No matter how great or how strong or how fortified those Cities, those people may be, Moses says, never, never, never forget El Gabor, the mighty God who is the mightiest, the greatest of them all. He says, they may have some great warriors in those other nations and armies, but none of them will compare to me, the mighty God, El Gabor. And again, he's cautioning them, he's reminding them, he's encouraging them, as you prepare to move into this new territory filled with all kinds of new challenges, to remember and to take comfort that this mighty God, El Gabor, this champion God who sustains you in the wilderness will be the same mighty God, the same champion God who will sustain you into the promised land. Moses is telling them as you continue to move forward, don't forget the past. Because the mighty God who fought for you then will be the same mighty God who will fight for you now. So he's preparing them for what's ahead. 
by reminding them of what is behind them, particularly God's faithfulness to them. So when they come face to face with enemies awaiting them in the promised land, rather than get all fearful and stressed and worried, they can find peace, take comfort in knowing that the mighty God who delivered them from their enemies in the past is the same mighty God, El Gabor, who never changes, who always remains the same, will deliver them now and into the future as well. See, we stand on the threshold of a new year, 2015. And you and I know Based on our own experience, it's going to be filled with a lot of challenges, a lot of obstacles. Some of those challenges, opportunities, obstacles are going to be small, and some of them are going to be overwhelming. But we need to remember the same mighty God, El Gabor, who got you to this point today will be the same God who will be with you today as well as into your future. See, if he was my warrior God, my El Gabor in all of my yesterdays, and because he never changes, and because his word says he'll never leave you, he'll never abandon you, he's not gonna leave you as an orphan, he will be my warrior God both today and for all of my tomorrows. Let me just close with this. As I stated earlier, El Gabor, the mighty God, means God is the mighty champion. He's the mighty warrior. He's the conquering God. He is our divine hero. So when the Bible describes the mighty God as a conquering, a victorious God, it would make sense to me that when we are seated with Christ, when we abide with him and he abides with us, it would make sense to me that if God and Jesus being co-equal, co-eternal with God is a conquering, victorious God, and we know that Jesus was, the greatest example of that was the cross of Christ. The greatest example of victory, of conquering the enemy, the cross of Christ. So you know what, it makes sense to me that if I'm in him and he's in me, that what Paul says, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. All things, the known, the unknown, the planned, the unplanned, the wanted, the unwanted, the good, the bad, the evil, the righteous, the unrighteous, all things. Because we abide in him and he abides in us, because he is the mighty God, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him and because of him who loved us. Again, the greatest example of this is the cross of Christ. Before Jesus went, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. This is, it's almost as if he's saying, this will make more sense in a couple of hours. This is my body broken for you. So that every time you do this in remembrance, do it in remembrance of me. And he took the glass and he lifted that up and he gave thanks to God and he gave it to them and he said, this is the blood of a new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. He said, every time you participate in this, do it in remembrance of me, what it represents, what it stands for. 
And so what he did there symbolically, he goes to the cross and does literally. His body is broken as it's nailed to the cross. His blood is spilt for the forgiveness of sin. And he said, every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. This is the reminder of the overcomer. This is the reminder of the conqueror. And every time we do it, we're just reminding ourselves of that verse in all of these things, no matter what you're gonna face today, tomorrow, in your future, in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us and demonstrated that love by his body being broken, his blood being shed, him going to the cross for you and me. And, and you may be here this morning and you've never ever really had any idea who Jesus was. You could be like me many, many years ago. And maybe you heard for the first time this morning, Jesus is God, man, I've never ever contemplated that. I've never ever understood that. I've never believed that. And maybe this morning God is moving in your heart and bringing you to a place where you believe and you embrace that. And I'll never forget a couple of years after I had that encounter, there was just a time in my life where I just simply made that confession with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. And God, I believe you raised him from the dead as proof that he is. And maybe you're here this morning, you've never done that. I would invite you this morning, it's just as simple as making that confession with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And I believe, I choose to believe, even though I may not understand any of it or all of it, but I just choose to believe that God, you did raise him from the dead for me, for my salvation, for my hope, for my future. If that's you this morning, again, that's the greatest Christmas gift you could ever receive. That is why Jesus came, to give you life, to give you forgiveness this morning. And if you've never done that, I would just encourage you this morning, three simple words, Jesus is Lord. Father, we just thank you this morning, and Father, I just pray, Lord, that you'll release faith in this room, especially to those, Father, who have never, ever maybe made that profession of faith in their hearts, who maybe have never, ever acknowledged or understood that that child that was born, that son that was given and referring to Jesus Christ is indeed co-equal, co-eternal with God, and that's what makes him Lord. And because he is co-equal, co-eternal with God, I want that Jesus to be my Lord, my Savior. It's why he came. It's why his body was broken and his blood was shed. It was done for me. It was done for my forgiveness, for my salvation. And Father, I want to receive that gift of eternal life this morning. And we thank you, Father, that that gift of eternal life, that gift of forgiveness, that gift of freedom, that gift of wholeness this morning just begins with those three simple words. Jesus is Lord. And Father, we just come this morning and we partake of these symbols that represent that great truth this morning. And we thank you, we commune, we fellowship, and we worship you in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.